Welcome back to Community Possibilities. On today's show, I have as my guests, Veronica Squires and Brianna Lathrop. They are the co-authors of How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, Restoring Health and Wellness to Our Communities. They are friends as well as co-authors. And wow, what great timing do they have? Their book actually came out in 2019. So let's just dive into this conversation all about the social determinants of health and how where we live really makes a difference in our health. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. Please help me wake up, welcome, excuse me, Brianna Lathrop and Veronica Squires to the podcast. Hey, ladies. Hello. Hello. Well, I am so excited to talk to you about your book and about the work that you do. But before we get into that, uh, I'm very curious for the audience to know how the heck, first of all, did you guys meet? And then how did you come to decide to write a book together? I'm writing a book with uh, my friend, Dr. Susan Wolf, and we're just about to the bitter end. And it has been a slog. So how, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, first of all, how you came to meet and then how you got this crazy idea to write this book. Sure. Well, we actually met by being colleagues at the Good Samaritan Health Center in the west side of Atlanta. So I came in as the chief development officer and Brianna had been there already a long time uh, as nurse practitioner. And during the time that we were there together, the then CEO, John Luckett, transition to go lead a homeless ministry in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the board ultimately decided to divide his responsibilities between Brianna and myself, um, reporting up to the founder and CEO, Bill Warren, Dr. Bill Warren. And so we were in many ways acting as kind of co-leaders of the organization. And really that is when we got to know each other very, very well, um, because we were kind of constantly working step hand in, you know, what's the saying, working hand in hand um, in step with each other. And it, and in that process um, came to learn that we both had young children and similar stage of life. And so then we started hanging out on the weekends and having lots of great conversations over meals. Um, and really that's where the, the idea for the book started to come about because I was, I was sharing a lot of stories from the time that my husband and my family lived in Southwest Atlanta, um, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about here soon. Um, and then Brianna was just, in hearing some of the stories that I was sharing, was able to really provide a lot of context and narrative around what we were experiencing in that time that we were living in Southwest Atlanta. And it was really in having these kind of more personal conversations that we realized there might be a book here because I have some of these personal experiences and a lot of open-ended questions that I was asking coming out of living in Southwest Atlanta for about a decade. Brianna had this really rich history of having a doctorate in social determinants of health and having done patient care for many years. And it just, it's kind of like it just lined up and I had a connection with InterVarsity Press because I used to work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for a short time. And we were like, you know what, let's just reach out and see if they have any interest in a book like this. And uh, kind of the, we went through all the steps of putting a proposal together and they ultimately decided to, even though this is 
definitely outside of their box in terms of the sorts of books they publish. They, I think, took a chance on us and decided that they would publish this book. Um, one other just quick funny anecdote. When we thought about writing this book, we had this vision, like, we're going to go off to a cabin and we're going to have some, like, quiet thinking time and we're just going to plan and write. Life never allowed that to happen. This book was very much written in the wee hours while kids were throwing spaghetti across the room, like absolutely just in the fray of life. And in so many ways, I think that really describes who Brianna and I are all the time. We're just kind of trying to do this work in the midst of all the other things. Um, but just, yeah, I feel really fortunate to have had the opportunity to work with Brianna on this project. So no cabin in the woods. There was no cabin in the woods. Nope. No, Still haven't there. made it to the woods uh, <laughs> years later. <laughs> well, well, I do recommend it because uh, Susan and I just went up to North Georgia mountains <laughs> to finish the book. Now it's still not finished where we have four <laughs> folks editing it. Uh, and now we're incorporating the edits, but we did take a long weekend in the North Georgia mountains. I do highly recommend. Next book. Yeah, next, <laughs> right. yeah. Next, next book. Yeah, and I, um, I was uh, recording the intro before you guys hopped off, and I, and I said, what great timing did they have? The book came out in 2019, right? So for all of you who are wondering what we're talking about, uh, the book is called How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, Restoring Health and Wellness to Our Communities. I love the back and forth. I love the back and forth of uh, Veronica, your family's story, living in community, and um, Brianna, your story about all the people that you were trying to help. And, and, and to be honest, both of your frustrations with each of those um, situations. So it's a very um, easy read. It's an enjoyable read. Um, and I just want to commend you for getting this done, getting it out here. I, I feel you. So uh, we've talked a little bit about the book. Let's dive into it. So the first part is all about how we get sick. The second part is how we get well. You each kind of talk about your very personal experience, um, your Christian experience in um, the work that you do, and feel free to talk about that to whatever uh, level you feel comfortable so um, maybe you can just tell a little bit more about your story, Brianna, as, as the nurse practitioner for Good Sam, and then Veronica, maybe a little bit about your uh, decision to mu move into uh, the community that you chose to, to live in and kind of that first part of the book. Sure. So I moved to Atlanta with my husband when we were 22 um, to go to Emory and graduated and found myself in my dream job, which was a small clinic with only two exam rooms uh, and seeing patients from the community. My husband and I lived just around the corner from that clinic. I could walk home if I wanted to um, and started seeing patients and really felt like, you know, I had I had gone to school I could write prescriptions. I had books of guidelines. Um, I had also done a master's in public health thinking if I really understood the healthcare system, if I really understood outcome management and insurance and Medicaid and Medicare, that I was equipping myself to really make an impact in health outcomes in the community. Um, and I fell in love with my patients and the work that I was doing day in and day out. Um, but I really quickly learned how much I didn't know 
how how many false narratives I had inherited as someone just growing up in, in a middle-class family, a white middle-class family in the Midwest, um, how much I didn't understand about poverty, how much I didn't understand about health and wellness and illness. Um, and really very early in my career started a journey of not only reinventing and re-understanding for myself what does it mean to do care and to work in healthcare, but also this process of un un unlearning and kind of questioning why are things done this way and what am I missing? Um, and so uh, as, as Veronica mentioned, I went back to school because I was like, what else do I do? I've got to, I've got to figure this out. And I was working while I was in school and transitioned to Good Samaritan Health Center during that time um, and started really encountering the literature around social determinants of health which at the time was still a very emerging topic, so very academic, but started to find that there were researchers and sociologists um, that had been describing their lived experience and their experience in powerful ways uh, well, well before I was encountering anything in the clinic um, and started to really find a body of literature that helped explain what was going on and helped change the way I was doing my work um, so that I could be there for my patients in a way that that met their needs. And then I started thinking more holistically about what, what does it mean to show up in an exam room as a care provider, but then what does it mean when I walk out those doors and I'm just a community member? Um, and if, if the things that are most impacting the health of my patients are existing outside of this clinic, then that needs to also change me and who I am in the world um, and rethink how that balance is gonna play out in my career ongoing. So I think, you know, as Veronica and I worked on this book, for me, it was a, another step in a process of kind of being very thankful for the generosity and love um, and transparency of my patients who have always been and continue to be my greatest teachers um, and a chance to kind of say, kind of just be vulnerable about who I am um, and what I've done wrong and what I've unlearned and relearned in hopes that that those who read it or those that are students just entering this field could could see a piece of that um, and start a little earlier in their journeys and that that we don't have to recreate and reinvent but that we can kind of build this better understanding and community narrative around what is health uh, and how do we get there yeah very good and veronica if i could just jump in here for just a second and just um maybe we could just back up for one minute and just define social determinants of health. We've talked about that on the show, but in case someone is just hearing the show for the first time, um, Brianna, can you just tell, say a little bit about what social determinants of health are? And golly gee, I thought access to healthcare was the only thing people needed. Right, me I'm, too. I'm winking. <laughs> people can't yeah. see me winking, but yeah, so the fancy definition of, of social determinants of health, like from the World Health Organization, is they are the conditions in which people are born, live, work, grow, learn, and play that impact both longevity, how long you live, as well as healthcare outcomes. And they're influenced by the distribution of, of, of money, power, and resources. Um, I like to give a quick illustration that I think is a little more helpful than some of these big definitions. Um, and I say picture a target. Like, uh, like what my kids would use with their bow and arrows at home. And right in the middle of that target, you've got health. And that's what we all want for ourselves, for our families, our community, me for my patients. But we know that in the U.S. that healthcare alone can only prevent about 10 to 15% of premature death. 
that's not a whole lot, um, especially if you're in more of the traditional healthcare field, that seems a little alarming. Um, and so we say, okay, so that's, that's not the whole picture. So we take one step out on that, on that target. And we often come to health behavior, those decisions that are, what do you eat? Do you exercise? Do you smoke? And we know that that matters too. Um, but two important things. One is that health behavior change alone in the U.S. could prevent maybe another 30 to 40% of premature deaths. And that health behavior decisions aren't equally distributed in terms of how we make them and the availability to make good healthcare or decisions about our health behaviors. Uh, so we're only at 50% of outcomes kind of explained in this much more traditional medical model. So we have to take another step out. And here's where we talk about things like housing, neighborhood safety, social cohesion. Who do you trust? Who do you know? Who are your supports? education opportunities. Um, what, not only are you housed or not, but are they safe environments? Are you moving constantly? What are the employment opportunities? And is it high stress um, and low control? Or does it give you a chance to really connect with what you do in advance? And then I think where I've continued to grow even, even since um, publishing the book is then thinking that the final step out is then thinking about the historical, political, and larger contextual of factors that influence disparities in each of these other social determinants. So thinking about systems of oppression, poverty, racism, and how these decisions throughout time and history and social norms have impacted disparities in housing or education or employment that then impacts the very real life experience of people. And I think one final point I'll make, and I'm probably going on a little too long, but I think it's really important to name that social determinants of health aren't risk factors for poor health. I think most of us can say, sure, if you slept outside last night, you would have more exposure to bad health than if you slept in a stable environment. And certainly that's true. But what we know is that for people that are living in poverty or struggling to figure out how to plan meals to last a whole month um, or experiencing racism on a daily basis, that this creates stress. And our bodies were never meant to deal with the chronic stress of the inequity of this world. Um, and so that actually starts to change us physiologically. And that stress becomes high blood pressure, increased risk of heart disease, mental illnesses, preterm deliveries, higher rates of cancer. And so that we're seeing not just this risk factor relationship, but a direct correlation between that chronic stress caused by inequity and the, the health outcomes and longevity of people. Thank you so much. I love that, that metaphor that really helps picture it. And I can just imagine when you found out 10%, oh, that must like hurt your heart a little bit. So Veronica, this is a great place to, to bring you into the conversation because I can imagine those backyard barbecues as you're talking to uh, Brianna about what you were, what you were experiencing in that community. So I'll let you tell your own story. Tell us about the decision that you and your husband made uh, to live in the neighborhood you did and a little bit about your experience. If I, if I remember right, you lived there for seven years, I think something like that. Um, it was just under 10 years. So oh almost, goodness. almost a full decade. Uh, we joked that we spent our twenties in Southwest Atlanta, which is pretty much the 10 years. We were almost 10 years. We were there. 
Yeah, so similar to Brianna, I grew up in a white middle-class family in, in Central Florida and went to Emory University for college, undergrad for college and grew up, um, I'd say, kind of non-denominational Christian faith. So when I got to Emory, I was really interested in getting involved in some kind of a Christian group on campus. And I ended up with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, which is the connection to why I worked for them later in life. But it's a parachurch organization um, that gets students together to be able to practice their faith on campus. But then also what was unique about the group, at least for me, was their emphasis on social justice and racial reconciliation and thinking about our responsibility as followers of God to be out in the world and doing something about the issues that exist, such as, you know, chronic poverty and thinking about communities that were marginalized or historically disinvested in. And so as a college student, my husband and I also met in InterVarsity. We were just really captivated by this idea that our faith was more than just a personal practice, but it should actually extend itself into some of our life decisions and how we choose to exist in the world. And at the time, we were also reading some of John Perkins' work. He's very much considered the father of the Christian Community Development Association. And he wrote some books that are still referenced today by practitioners. And the three kind of main ideas of his original work was um, relocate, which meaning that those with influence, resources, relocate from communities of plenty to communities of higher need. Um, redistribute is the second R, which is the idea that if you're living there, you're shopping at the local grocery store, you're going to the local gas station, you're helping to redistribute wealth into a community that has, again, experienced perhaps historic disinvestment. And then reconciliation is the third R, which is about racial reconciliation by building relationships, moving in, loving your neighbors, and just being a good neighbor. Um, so we were that just really resonated for my husband and I. And as a result of you know, a lot of conversations and thought and prayer, we decided to move our family into Southwest Atlanta to very much do those three R's, relocate, redistribute resources and work towards racial reconciliation. And we were excited. We had visions of being you know, used in big ways to make changes in the community. And our heart was for sure in the right place. But I think what we found really quickly was that our best intentions were no match for the much larger systemic issues that were present in the community. And just to give a couple of illustrations of that. So we very quickly got involved with tutoring youth on the weekends. We had people sign up as volunteers. They'd come to our house. We would work you know, based on grade level and pair kids up with, men with tutors. And what we found very quickly was that that, you know, once a week assistance was no match for the major chronic issues that were happening in the local school system. Um, another example is a number of the teens who were trying to kind of stop making money in um, maybe more negative ways in terms of, you know, selling drugs or uh, be being involved in, um, in theft incidents. They're really trying to like make a turn, make money in another way. So we were like, yes, we'll help you. We would peruse you know, career builder and help them apply for jobs and teach them to look someone in the eye while giving a firm handshake, lend them professional clothes. 
but because they had a record there the, our best efforts were no match for trying to get these guys a job in a world that very much did not have patience or tolerance for people that had any kind of a record so we were just putting really our whole selves into trying to do this work help the kids help the teens engage with families advocate with the city on behalf of improvements that needed to be made in the neighborhood and honestly it felt like nothing helped um, and we weren't moving the needle for any not, not just any one person but definitely not in a neighborhood level way which was kind of our hope moving in and in addition to that which was disappointing in and of itself because kind of the idea is you're we were supposed to come in with like resources and help and joy and friendship and neighborliness and it was supposed to like help our neighbors. The, the other thing we started to recognize in ourselves was that the chronic stress related to what I now understand are the social determinants of health started to impact us. And we became, you know, discouraged and which led to depression. We were, you know, very much physical symptoms, uh, which were really the manifestations of stress like psoriasis and other physical ailments that um, we started to struggle with more. And it was in this time of just being kind of wondering like, why were we led to do this just to come here and fail? And why are we getting physically sick that Brianna and I started having these conversations. And I came to understand based from her experience, but also just her know her knowledge of what her patients experienced that there was this whole world of language and a way to describe the situation that many people had been studying for a long time, which was the social determinants of health and systemic issues at the city and um, national level. So, um, you know, what I'll pivot for just a second and say what we were really endeavoring to do when we wrote this book was to provide a very accessible narrative that would help give people a language for what my family was experiencing but couldn't name because i remember early on when brianna and i would uh, you know talk she i went and googled social determinants of health because i'm a reader and i was like if i can only find a book that will help me understand what's happening to my family and it was like all we could find were textbooks and i'm not going to read a textbook so we really wanted to to provide a part another chapter to this larger conversation about social determinants that was very relatable and readable but also defined what they are and gave some really practical examples of how we as just regular individuals can make decisions that help make a difference what strikes me about what you both just said is that you you both a have had the heart and had a calling and you followed that and then i don't know if you heard it i heard it maybe you already because you're friends uh that i'm just gonna i'm gonna go learn what it is that i need to do so that i can be helpful so brianna you went back to school veronica you were looking for the what is social determinants <laughs> right i love i love that um that's that's kind of how my brain works too. If I could just understand, right? And so it sounds like um, that each of you hit the proverbial wall at some point. I can only do this much. I can only, and I can't do anything else, right? And and I hear that level of fr frustration, Veronica. Like you must have felt like 
there is just this big hole in the floor and you're just pouring water and it just drains and, and it never stops, right? That's that's the image that kind of comes to, to my mind. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, I came to understand a long time ago that I had to be okay with being a seed planter. A pl you know, someone who plants the seeds, somebody else was going to water it and fertilize it. Somebody else was going to harvest it, but that wasn't, that wasn't my job. Um, so I, I wonder where you, after you kind of got that frustration point, then what, then what, then what were you called next? Or what was the learning aside from the book? What was the learning for you? How did that change your career trajectory? How did that change your families? Jump in with the thought on that. So there's a song that we quote a portion of it in the book, which is by Nicole Nordeman called The Unmaking, which is essentially a song where she's sharing about she had this structure, which is metaphorically her faith that has basically become torn down. And all she can see now is the sky. And in the tearing down of her thought of how her faith and she were supposed to be, it actually opened up the view of seeing the like what she was actually indeed supposed to be before God. Um, and I think that while I didn't see that at the time, that has very much been my experience of that, you know, I asked so many times the question of like, well, if we were supposed to do this, why are we failing? Why is it not working? And now, of course, the the advantage of hindsight is I can see looking back that that was the point. If, if we had moved in and had this wonderful ministry that was, you know, people were getting saved and the neighborhood was getting changed and everything was great. I would have never asked the question, why are people still sick in in these communities? And if my family hadn't experienced sickness ourselves, it wouldn't have driven us to seek so hard for answers, I don't believe. And so the journey of the tearing down was all part of it and part of the purpose towards being able to rebuild towards something else. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think of that. The other thing, I, thing I've come to realize about myself is that my gifts for the world are not necessarily in direct service, working with you know youth. I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but it was very tiring and very taxing um, to do the like direct neighborhood work. Where I am gifted is in fundraising. I can I can raise some money um, for a cause <laughs> and in leadership. I love managing people. I love shepherding a vision. I love the structure of organizations and what that enables you to do in the world. And I work now for the Boys and Girls Clubs in Metro Atlanta. And in so many ways, what we do as an organization is what my family was trying to do, but with a staff and a structure around it. And that is how you get that work done. You don't do it as individuals trying to climb a mountain alone. You do it in community. Mm -hmm. And so I, in so many ways, I feel like I am still doing the work, but I'm in the right seat on the bus for what, for the gifts and talents that I have. Um, and I feel good about that. I mean, it's been quite a winding journey to land here, but I feel good about Mm -hmm. where I am now. Yep. It's all learning. What about you, Brianna? What have you learned along the way? There, there's been a lot of learning, um, but I think, I think for me, there, 
there was a moment where I said, you know, is, is patient care what I do? Like if I, if I learn all of this about how much of health is impacted outside of the world of healthcare, did, did I get it wrong? Um, and really struggled because I love patient care um, and can't leave it. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's where I feel most alive. Um, and really just coming to realize that, that both have to happen. And I think both have to happen maybe in one individual, maybe in a collective group of people, maybe in society, but we have to do the work that needs to be done now because of the harm that's already been done. Um, and we need to learn from that and we need to be better listeners um, to the voices of those closest um, to that experience to, to then change the future in a way that makes sure that that's not the lived reality for, for another generation. And so I think for me, there was change both in how I practiced. Um, I do a lot of listening and partnering, uh, really trying to understand the lived experiences of the people that are entrusting me as part of their healthcare team, um, to really value that that is a gift and that is an honor to be invited into their journey. Um, and that their lived experience and knowledge of their own body and resiliency is a knowledge that they bring very uniquely, that is equally important to any knowledge I contribute. And so really trying to model healthcare after a new way of thinking about knowledge and power and what that looks like to do in day-to-day -day work in an exam room. Um, and, and not as someone that's perfected it, but certainly as someone that's willing to share that learning um, and keep failing and getting it better and better as I go, hopefully. Um, but then to also say, how do I take that learning and expand it in ways that help influence um, change? And for me, that's been both in a leadership role in an organization and kind of thinking about, you know, why do we run healthcare the way that we do? And what if we didn't? Like, what if we just started without those rules? What if we took chances? And, and having really being thankful for an opportunity to do that here at the clinic um, at Good Samaritan. Um, also in whether it's speaking or writing or consulting, just helping other organizations also ask those questions to say mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to go against things that have been doing that have been going on a long time and it's hard to take risks but we know the system right now is broken um and so we we have to find spaces um to take those risks um but to do it in a way that's based on on evidence and and based on not just evidence in terms of literature reviews and book knowledge which i love but more importantly the evidence of of people that we ask people their stories we believe them when they tell us what they need and then we partner together to say, what does it look like to do this differently? And so I try to show up in that space in the exam room and I try to show up in that space as a mother, um, and as a community member, um, as a clinic leader, and also just in talking, whether it's uh, on, a, on a podcast or uh, at a keynote or with some students, just continuing to share those, those ideas so that we really are rethinking how do we kind of restructure healthcare and, and a larger question of how do we restructure society in a way that actually works towards equity versus against it, which is, I think, largely, unfortunately, what, what our nation has been doing. Right. And I, that, that idea of um, understanding, uh, well, I guess listening first, right? Listening for understanding with people with lived experience um, really definitely speaks to my heart. Our our mutual friend, Veronica Dana Keener Master. She and I are both uh, uh, community psychologists. So we're all about that, all about being in community. Um, but they they know what they need. 
They, mm -hmm. they absolutely know what they need. They don't always have the power to get what they need, right? And that's, mm -hmm. that's where sometimes uh, we can have an impact. I want to talk about the last half of the book because it touches on some of the things that we're talking about, right? So the second half of the book is all about how do we get well? And you do that through the story of the folks that you meet in the clinic and then Veronica, as well as your coming to understand those gifts and, and where you can really be of service. So we, we, can, we can help people get well through poverty, for food access, for uh, getting a job, Veronica, you were talking about trying to help these young men who had uh, who had some record in the criminal justice. Impossible. Just we make it impossible for people to have second chances uh, through education. So, can you talk about maybe the second part of the book and and what you were trying to achieve there? I think our goal is that even now I'd say that there's that we've come a long way just as a nation and in terms of publications around understanding the problem like how do we define social determinants what do we know how do we measure them but I think what is often much more challenging is like what do we do about it like it's a lot of unlearning rewriting starting over undoing um, and that's an uncomfortable and difficult process um, and I think there's a, a lot of genuine uh, well-placed fear and concern about doing it in a way that doesn't cause more damage. Um, and so I think our, when we looked at the, the second part of the book, we really wanted to, to help people feel empowered that there are things that individuals, communities, small groups of people can do that make a difference. Um, and we pulled here both from our own experiences, but also went out and interviewed a lot of people that we saw as kind of local heroes that had taken those chances and had done new and different things. Um, it was one of my favorite parts of the book. Again, I like, I really like learning. Um, and these interviews to me were just this gift of like a, a perspective and someone's journey on how they saw a problem and, and did something different. Um, and so the part two is kind of a combination, not only of our stories, but of these other organizations and leaders and local heroes and kind of how they approach this as a way of kind of giving hope and ideas in, into communities that, you know, whether you are a healthcare person or whether you are an educator or whether you're on a school board, that there are, a, that you are part of the health journey of the people in your neighborhood and, and giving pictures of the ways in which that occurs and that can be done. So let's talk about that a little bit because you were talking about like the different levels uh, and what you learn from these community leaders. So um, what are some of the national things that you, let's just say that it's just the three of us and we get to choose national policy. So Veronica, what, what can we do? What, what, are, what are some of the things that nationally we should be doing? I'm going to tip that one to Brianna just because she's, <laughs> She's got such good answers on the policy side, and I'm usually asking her that question. So, <laughs> all right, we're coming. Right here, you're stuck with me again. Um, so I think you know when we look at what we do know from like actual measurements and published articles. For example, we know that community interventions that most directly impact social determinants of health and are linked to improved health outcome, health outcomes include income support programs, getting people money for what they need, 
housing mobility programs, moving people from insecure housing or homelessness to secure housing, and early childhood development programs like your Head Start, those um, parenting supports. Um, and those are, those are a few key examples that emerge over and over again. And I think that what they help us see is that, yes, those are interventions that can be done at the community level, but they need national policy around. Like, I can help my patients apply for food stamps and see if they're eligible for disability, and I can help them with that paperwork. But I can't fund someone to be able to afford to live in Atlanta or be able to afford food to the end of the month, right? Like those are national policy decisions that look at how do we distribute resources in a way that we are actively working against policy. I think that's where we talk about things like living wage, um, benefits, uh, who gets insurance, how much does insurance cost? What about insuring everyone? What would that look like? that those types of decision levels have to be done at a large enough level to have the economics work out, to have right. the purchasing power of, in, of insurance. Um, same with large scale funding. You know, if we wanted to say, why don't we make college affordable for every American that wanted secondary education? That would need to be an, a national type policy decision. Or what if we fund Head Start programming for any child under the age of five that the parents should be able to find high quality um, affordable child care to be able to supplement their own nourishment education of their kids as well as be able to take care of their own selves and their lives and their employment and so I think when we are talking about national policy that those are the types of issues that come to a forefront and I think the so I think that that can feel really like intimidating like right, like that's going to happen, or that's a long way from now. But I think the like the, the cool part that makes me excited about that is that like, wherever you work, or whatever your passion is, like, your policy matters, right? So if you are like, a, I care about education person, like, please, honestly, education policy and access to education will have more to do with long-term health outcomes than the work I do in a clinic any day. If you care about transportation and saying, is public transportation accessible, affordable, and a reality across the U.S., and you want to fix that, like, please, that would, that would be huge gains in people's employment opportunities and help move the needle on poverty, right? And so I think the, the, the encouraging part of that type of conversation is that it's when we start having people from very different sectors with different expertise um, and life experiences coming together and saying, this issue matters to me because, this issue matters to me because, and we all speak into what is needed to make that programming move, then we actually create something really powerful that I, I think has the potential to make those bigger changes that often feel impossible. Well, you know, when you were talking about transportation, I, you know, I get certainly get the whole how we fund healthcare is a national policy issue, right? But when you start talking about transportation, and the three of us live in Georgia, we see how critical transportation is, especially in our rural communities, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have our rural hospitals that are closing. There is uh, a, a, just a tremendous lack of transportation, even within the city of Atlanta, right? We, we can't always get to where we want to go without hopping in a car. So if you don't have a car, 
that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Getting to the grocery store, all of those kinds of things. And I noticed in the book, you talk about national factors, you talked about individual factors. So I did want to ask you at the state level, and I'm not, I don't mean to be picking on Georgia, but just in general at the state level. So transportation, certainly. Are there other things at the, at the state level that, that could be done? I mean, certainly states are intimately involved in health care for, for the poor and the fact that Medicaid is a state-administered program. Um, so, I mean, Georgia, for example, could expand Medicaid. Like, that's an option. Um, and that's something that, you know, a lot of people in the healthcare space are certainly advocating for. Um, I think there's, even when you look at policies around um, zoning and districting, those are often state level type policies that have a lot to do with where people can live, um, the affordability, uh, voting and voting rights access that states are involved and in control of a lot of policies that directly impact health. Um, and I think we can also be creative too about you know, there are things that maybe we don't have an immediate policy solution for, but a great example for transportation is that transportation is a major barrier for our patients. Um, and we started working with some local larger funders who have a bit more influence than a single clinic like us to develop a partnership with Uber Health. We can, at this moment, we have funding to get any patient to our clinic for any appointment they need to with a free Uber ride that we set up for them on our database. They don't have to have a smartphone. They don't have to have a credit card and I can bring them to the clinic. Now that would be life-changing in a rural area where there's no public transit, uh, let alone a limited one. And that's a very, it's a, it's a private partnership, for example, but a cool solution that's done at a little more of a local level. And so I think there's a lot of uh, that states and, and private partnerships can do together to like incentivize and make those types of partnerships sustainable and welcome. Like, why not set up major rideshare programming that is subsidized or affordable so that that type of, of service that's changing my patient's access to healthcare is being done throughout the state, right? So I think that that to me is also the reason to try hard things and to do new things at local and community levels is because if you can prove its viability and you can get interest and numbers and success stories, you could start to go to the bigger organizations that are slower moving, like a state, like a national mm -hmm. government, like a major national uh, funding organization um, with some power and with some ideas and with something very tangible to start moving toward, towards and funding. Well, uh, I've never heard of Uber Health before that you just taught me something new. And that made me think about, you know, really what you're saying is we just have to be creative, right? We just have to be willing to think about things in a different way. And uh, you also um, uh, perked up my ears because you said outcomes and um, Veronica, you work, you swim in the development lane. So I know, you know what I'm, where I'm going here. So I know in I'm in trouble. No, you're not in trouble. You're going to help me out because I have a feeling you didn't write this one, but in the book, you talk about the overhead myth and the burden of evaluation. Um, so let's do these one at a time. All right. You know, full disclosure, you know, I'm a community psychologist, but I do a lot of evaluation. So we're going to go there. All right. So the overhead myth is this idea that nonprofits should not have any overhead or should have very, very minimal overhead. Veronica, you work for a nonprofit. Veronica, you do too. Just talk briefly about why that's a myth. 
Okay, so when you think about health and human service nonprofits, most of us, Good Samaritan, Boys and Girls Club, YMCA, CRISP 180, a lot of these organizations can only effectively do what they do with people. And a lot of us spend the bulk of our budget on salaries, which is often considered an overhead item. Now, it's a, even that is a little bit interesting that that's often, salaries are often just lumped into overhead because if I'm paying the salary of my club executive director and their program directors, and they're directly delivering programs to kids, that, that could be considered direct services. And in some cases with some grantors, it is, but largely salaries kind of get lumped into overhead a lot. Um, so I think the myth that, you know, many donors think they need to look for organizations that spend less on overhead and more on program supplies and things like that, it just kind of misses the point because unless you're going to deliver these critical services through robots, you need to pay your staff and you need to pay your staff competitively so that you can retain good people and deliver high quality programs. We're running into this right now at Boys and Girls Club because of the job economy. You know, we we use a lot of part-time staff, especially in the summer. And our part-time hourly rate, we can't even begin to com compete with retail and fast food restaurants who are offering huge signing bonuses right now to come and, and work for them. And, you know, if we were to go to our board or to our funders and say, you know, we're going to start paying $18, $20 an hour for part-time work, we'd get some pushback because that's the, the, the degree to which that would grow our bottom line, our operating budget would be significant and it would be very hard to sustain. So I think we need to get to a place in the funding community. And actually I think COVID helped with this because a lot of funders, and I was very impressed in the Atlanta market, a lot of funders, particularly foundations started giving big grants with no strings attached. They mm -hmm. said, we trust you. We know this is a hard time. Use it how you need it. And mo what did most of us do? We used it on salaries for staff because that's what we needed. Right. So I do think the conversation is already changing and I'm excited to see that. At the time when we wrote the book, uh, it was a different kind of landscape where you really had to be able to give a lot of justification for how salaries and overhead dollars were going to move the bottom line. Um, in terms of outcomes. And so I think, I think that has already shifted, but it's, it, 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 it's just an interesting dynamic because you've got to have people, you've got to have good leadership. You've got to pay people benefits. I mean, all that stuff is just critical to doing the good work. Right. Brianna, is there anything you wanted to add there? No, I have lots of thoughts on the outcome side of things, but I think, I think Veronica nailed it on the why we need overhead. Well, <laughs> let me just say this. I have spent many, 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 many hours in boys and girls clubs, either as an undergraduate, as a volunteer, or collecting my dissertation data, or uh, evaluating different boys and girls clubs. And those, the staff there are worth their weight in gold. They are not simply babysitters. They are role models. They are teachers. They are tutors. They are 
They are art directors. They are the safety patrol watch, walking those kids from school to the club and to their apartment or wherever they they live and providing that uh, that love and stability that those kids need. So shout out to all the Boys and Girls Club staff, all the folks who do youth development. Oh my gosh, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, let's get this. The burden of evaluation. And Brianna, I I feel you. My heart broke a little bit. It did when you, oh, the, oh my God. Because just like you love taking care of patients, I love that. You know why I love evaluation? Because it tells the story of what you're trying to do. That's why I love evaluation. But you tell the story, and I get this, where you're talking about, oh my gosh, this funder wanted the data sliced and diced in a different way. And Good Samaritan has, uh, you know, you've got folks who have some skills, they've got capacity, they have the technology. I know Boys and Girls Club is a very data-driven organization. I get it. I feel you. And by question, I told you that I wrote in the notes is, did you push back on the funder, right? Because every funder wants their evaluation report and they want data a certain way and it's exhausting. I give you that. So did you really mean the burden of evaluation? Is that really what you meant? Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll say, and then I'll let Veronica contribute because she's done plenty of this towards the development side as well. But um, I actually like data um, and did a master's in public health, like on outcome. I like outcomes. And if we can't measure what we do, we risk doing things that aren't working and using yes. resources for things that don't work. So I don't think there's ever, I never have a question of the, should we be evaluating? Um, I think where it becomes really challenging is that, there are, and I definitely agree with Veronica that there's been a change since COVID-19, um, that there are a lot more funders willing to have it as a discussion. Um, and I, because I don't do development, uh, I feel like I maybe should be careful about the secret, but I have this like lucky like gift of being able to play dumb when it comes to these conversations. Um, so I get to kind of go in and be like, oh, why are we, why are we measuring it that way? Don't we, are we worried about, um, so I, I love pushing back because the stakes are lower for me. Um, but I think where I get concerned about uh, evaluation is less in the day-to-day -day and more as we work towards equity and we start to have these conversations about social determinants of health that, you know, funders, I get, they need a six-month evaluation and a 12-month evaluation, but we are talking about generations of damage. And we are talking about policies that have systemically marginalized people for the benefit of other groups of people for the history of our nation. Like we're not talking about outcomes that change on a six to 12 month time frame. And we are also talking about a very emerging field, meaning we have to start planning on funding some failure. Like we have to let grassroots ground operating people try some new things when the old ones aren't working and not all those new things are gonna work. And that is super scary for someone in a nonprofit or running a nonprofit that there is so much pressure to say that by six months, I've got to prove this is working. And if you, if you are proposing an equity-based initiative that says you're going to move healthcare outcomes and you can measure a change in six months, I'm going to, I'm going to say that's a bluff, right? Like, no, you're not. Like, <laughs> like at best you could improve learning and you could start building towards things that actually do change life expectancies. Um, 
And I think that that requires much more of a partnership and combination conversation between the funders and the outcomes experts and the program delivery and the people receiving the program to kind of come together yes. and say, what makes sense to measure so that there is accountability and transparency, but we are also being honest about what we can measure when, and we are creating a space in which we can have some creativity and, and re-envisioning and reimagining without the risk of shutting down or losing funders permanently. So that, that's my, my outcomes feel. I don't we, need outcomes management. We, <laughs> we do not disagree. I 100% couldn't even have said it better. Veronica, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, the only thing I'll add that gets challenging about evaluation from a development standpoint is at an organization the size of Boys and Girls Clubs in Metro Atlanta, you know, our operating budget is around $21 million this year. Almost 19 of that my team raises from corporations, foundations, individuals. And some of it gets passed through uh, from our national organization with outcomes that have to be delivered. So you could at any given time have like 100 different grants or gifts that are tied to an evaluation plan or specific deliverables and outcomes that you need to report back on in a short time period as Brianna already talked about. And then you've also got, if you're a healthy organization, a strategic plan with your own metrics that you're driving towards. And so the burden comes in and just the sheer volume of it. Right. And also it creates some confusion for staff who are like, well, we've got our strategic plan goals. We've got our professional development goals. We've got this grant, that grant, and this other grant that has different outcomes that we're driving with our youth. We've got our own, uh, we call it the National Youth Outcomes Inventory Survey that we do through Boys and Girls Clubs of America. So there's a lot and I just heard this from a club director yesterday at our extended leadership team meeting. And they were just saying, you know, it's been a lot to get all the data back to your team, my team resources development that you need, because we're trying to do all these other things and it's COVID and there's challenges right. and, and that's why we can't meet the deadlines. I'm getting you the data that you need. And I, I feel for them because it's it's a lot of different like we said in the book slicing and dicing and framing it and reporting it so i think sometimes again it, it is starting to shift where i think more funders appreciate this but sometimes in the past it's felt like every funder almost like a college professor just feels like they're the only ones asking you right. for something um and that's not not the case um so that's the other piece that makes it hard yeah so I want to wrap this up. First of all, let me thank you for the conversation and for the book. Um, so I have to ask you both. Uh, the question I ask everybody is when you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see? I'll jump in first. Uh, I think what excites me most about communities is that when I think about like major change movements and like rethinking how we address homelessness, for example, or healthcare, that many of those were rooted in groups of people that just got together in their communities and said, hey, we have a problem and the solutions available aren't working, let's make something new. And then they shared that and it grew and it, it changed lives and it changed 
in much bigger ways than I think those groups of people originally intended. And so I think I think the other thing we have right now is this really unprecedented opportunity with COVID-19 where we're reinventing a lot of things, how we do work, how we do community, how we socialize. Um, and it, it creates this really unique, that's kind of both terrifying and wonderful at the same time, opportunity to say, let's do it different. Like, let's, let's question all of it. Let's say we've, we see what's broken. It's been really ripped wide open and on display um, for a while now, but especially during COVID. And I hope what, what I want to see in the future is just this growing movement of communities taking that chance to say, we're going to do it based on what we know because of our own resiliency, our own lived and learned experience. And we're going to work together to try something a little different. Um, and that those little differences, the ones that work and the ones that make the biggest impact can grow then to, to define new strategies at state and national and larger levels to kind of recreate uh, a lot of our systems that have been so deeply entrenched in inequity for too long. I think that's all spot on. And the only thing I would add is I see a lot of community possibilities in our youth and I meet so many amazing, talented youth through my work with Boys and Girls Clubs. And I see how just having supportive adult relationships, a safe place to go, quality programming can really ignite potential. And I see it being ignited in communities all across Metro Atlanta. And I think back on you know, some of the lives that my husband and I were trying to impact back in our neighborhood in Southwest Atlanta. And I don't actually know where many of those youth are today. I hope and pray that they're killing it and doing great. Um, but what I imagine and what I want for them is what I see in so many of the boys and girls that come through our clubs every day. And so I hope for more igniting of possibilities in the lives of youth uh, in these communities because all the things Brianna is talking about that we need to do and the creativity that's needed will ultimately need to be done by us now and then the next generation coming up. Um, and I feel like the future is bright. We've got some great, great future leaders coming up in the world. I agree. So ladies, I, I wanna thank you again for joining me today. So how can people get in touch with each of you? We're very accessible. Uh, we love to hear from folks that have read the book or interested in the book, disagree with the book. Um, we love to have those conversations. We love feedback. Uh, my best email is my work email is vsquires at bgcma.org. People are also uh, welcome to reach out to me direct by phone. Um, and I think Brianna would probably say the same. But yeah, we love to hear from folks and continue the conversation. Yes, my email is Brianna, B-R-E-A-N-N-A at goodsamatlanta.org. I would love to hear from anyone. Right. And I'll be sure and put those emails in the, the show notes. All right, ladies, thanks again. Thank you so much Thank for having you. us. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. I hope you were inspired by what you heard. I have a big announcement for you. I have a new free mini course that is available that I have designed for community coalition and nonprofit leaders. I've found that something that gets community leaders over their fear of evaluation 
or maybe it helps them make it more of a priority anyway, is to think about how they can use their data to reach their audience. So in this free mini course, I talk about infographics and success stories, and uh, even throw in an activity that you can do with your community group. So uh, check it out. I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can go on it over and grab that mini course. And before I let you go, just want to remind you that it's so helpful if you would like and share and maybe even take that extra second to write a review about the podcast. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.